If you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Titus, chapter 1. Titus, chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 5 through 9. This morning we are continuing a series through the book of Titus that we began last week. And in light of the fact that we have just two weeks to our covenanting service, just one week till elder nominations, and just five weeks until we actually vote on the first elders of Grace Covenant Church, um, Titus is a helpful place to find ourselves this morning. Last week, we looked at our identity and our purposes as a church, that these must be formed and shaped and molded by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And today, as we look at Titus 1, verses 5 through 9, we also want to see that our leadership structures and the qualifications for the men who are put into leadership must be shaped and formed by the gospel of Jesus Christ as well. And so if you found your place to Titus chapter 1, I invite you to stand with me as we read God's word together. Paul writing to Titus says, The reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone. And as I directed you to appoint elders in every town, an elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife, with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful message as taught, so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. You may be seated. So as we learned last week from the first four verses of Titus, and actually from verse 5, we find in the book of Titus the Apostle Paul writing a letter to Titus, whom he calls his true son in a common faith, that he has sent back to the island of Crete to accomplish what Paul calls the work that has been left unfinished, or, or to set right what was left undone on the island of Crete. You see, the Apostle Paul had gone, as his custom was, to various towns on the island of Crete. He has preached the gospel to them, and there are those who are converted to Jesus Christ, and churches are being established on the island of Crete. And yet, for whatever reason, Paul was providentially hindered from continuing the work there of, of continuing to establish and build up these healthy churches by establishing proper discipleship structures and establishing proper leadership for them. Therefore, the Apostle Paul sends back Titus to finish the work that is left undone. There are some things there in the churches that aren't in proper order. They need to be set right. That word set right in verse 5 actually comes from our English, or we derive from the Greek there, our English word for orthodontics. And so if you've ever been to the orthodontist, you know that they put braces on your teeth to straighten out your teeth. And so while there may be a lot of beautiful individual teeth in there, what the orthodontist accomplishes is that he straightens out the teeth so that the smile as a whole is beautiful. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying to Titus is go and straighten out some things. There are a lot of good, solid pieces there in place, but some things need to be straightened out so that God is glorified and magnified in an even greater way in these churches. Some things need to be straightened out. 
Well, again, we find ourselves in a very similar situation as a uh, early and a very young church. And so as we look at the book of Titus, we can consider these the priorities of a church that desire to be a healthy and beautiful and God-glorifying church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to, from the very outset, set in order the things that will glorify God through us. And the first thing that the Apostle Paul turns to is leadership. In establishing priorities for a church, Paul focuses on leadership first. And he's communicating to us, I think, in that, that there is something lacking in a church when there are not proper leadership structures established. I think Paul is, again, subtly correcting and and showing us that we have tendencies to establish leadership structures in the way that we just best see fit rather than looking to God's word for how leadership ought to be done in a church. We will have a tendency toward pragmatism, doing whatever works, whether this is solo pastor and board of deacon model, whether this is committees, etc. We'll have a tendency toward doing whatever feels right in the moment. But I think Paul is communicating even deeper than that, that proper leadership structures in the church are for adorning the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are very young Christians who are learning what it means to follow Jesus. And Paul is saying you need to establish elders, leaders in the congregation to help teach and instruct and rebuke and correct those so that they live lives consistent with the gospel that they say that they believe. Leadership helps to guide the congregation to holiness and toward lives that glorify his son. And so as we consider Titus, these these verses we've read this morning, for Grace Covenant Church, in order for us to be a healthy church, we must embrace God's design for church leadership. We must embrace what God has commanded and established in his word for church leadership. And in doing that, in embracing God's design, there are three things we need to learn about leadership this morning, particularly the office of elder. Because leadership in the Lord's church begins first and foremost with Christ Jesus as head of his church. He is Lord alone of his church, but he has appointed under shepherds under him to lead and to guide and to shepherd his church on his behalf in his absence from earth. And so we need to learn three things about the office of elder. And the very first thing that we need to learn from verse 5 is that elders provide shared leadership in the church. Elders provide shared leadership in the church. And by the way, if you're following along and taking notes, or even if you're not taking notes, we're going to use quite a few extra cross-references than we normally would this morning. So I would encourage you to jot these down. These are going to be important verses for you to remember. But the first thing we need to see is elders provide shared leadership in the church. Paul says in verse 5, the reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone. And as I directed you, to appoint elders in every town. You see, on the island of Crete, there were multiple towns. There were cities, just as we might think of traveling from Eupora to Matheson on to Starkville. There were various towns on this one island of Crete. And Paul encourages Titus to go back and to establish elders in every town because there were churches springing up or there was a church springing up in every town and every single church needed a plurality of elders. They needed more than one elder. And so Paul lays out for them the qualifications for the office of elder or office of pastor. And by the way, there are only two offices in Christ's church. It is the office of pastor or elder, 
And it is the office of deacon. And so while in 1 Timothy 3, Paul lays out qualifications for both offices, here in Titus, Paul lays out the qualifications for the office of elder alone. I think primarily because he's focusing on these lives that adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ and the early churches, these young churches, need for leadership in how to do that. And so we find in these verses the office of elder or the qualifications for the office of elder. And there are three terms that are used in the New Testament interchangeably for that one office. Two of them are found here in Titus 1, verses 5 through 9. One is the office of elder, or spoken of by the term elder, but it's also spoken of as an overseer. He says in verse 7, as an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless. And so here we have two of the three words that are used interchangeably through the New Testament to describe this one singular office, elder and overseer. The other is that of pastor. That's the one that we're most familiar with, and that just simply means to shepherd. But it's only used once in the New Testament in the noun form to describe the actual office of a pastor. That's in Ephesians 4, where he speaks of the pastors and teachers who are given to the church for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. Everywhere else in the New Testament, it's used in the verb form, to shepherd or to guide or to to lead the congregation. And so we find these three words refer to the same office, and they're often used contextually to describe the nature of the office. Sometimes they're called elders, and this is the most often term used for them to refer to their spiritual maturity and their wisdom in leading the church. This isn't necessarily in reference to their age, but the wisdom which God has granted them in leading the church. They're sometimes referred to as overseers, referring to the oversight that elders exercise over the ministry of the church. This word could be translated as manager or superintendent or even guardian in which they protect that which the church is supposed to be. They are charged with seeing that things within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ are done rightly, not to rule over the church, but to lead the church in being the church that Christ expects his church to be. They're also referred to as pastors, referring to the way in which they lead and shepherd the congregation. And by these three terms, elder, overseer, pastor, we see that elders are to be servant leaders who serve as under-shepherds of the Lord Jesus by devoting themselves to the spiritual leadership of the church through the ministry of the word and prayer. They are set aside by the church to lead the congregation and oversee the ministry of the church. So we see these three terms used for the office of elder. And we need to become accustomed to speaking of the office as an office of elder. I think we sometimes think elders are different than pastors or, uh, and, and bishops or, or overseers are different than, uh, than elders. They're one term describing one, three terms, excuse me, describing one office. But Paul's point is clear. Every church needs a plurality of elders leading and shepherding the flock. Paul is clearly stating that a church without elder pastor leadership is lacking something that would prevent the church from glorifying God to the extent that it might otherwise not having pastor or leader oversight. God's design for the church is to have elder leadership. But I would also have you note carefully that it is in the plural. He says, appoint elders, plural, In every town, singular. And there would be one church in every town at this point in the church's history. And this is not the only place in the New Testament in which Paul or others describe plural elder leadership. 
It's described here in Titus 1.5, but it's also described in Acts 20, verse 17. Luke writes, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and summoned the elders of the church. Acts 14.23, Paul writes that when they, meaning Paul and his traveling companions, had appointed elders for them in every church and prayed with fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Again, in the book of Acts, we read in Acts 21, verses 17 and 18, When we reached Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters welcomed us warmly. The following day, Paul went with us to James, and all the elders were present. And then we read in James chapter 5, verse 14, If anyone among you is sick, he should call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And so here on all of these verses, we see one single church having multiple elders, plural elders, leading the church and praying and doing the ministry of the word in the church. And Paul, on the island of Crete, as Paul's pattern was, Titus is now to go to Crete and follow the same pattern in appointing these elders. But he wasn't to do so. We sometimes think of that word, by the way, appoint, as a unilateral appointment, as, as someone might appoint a, uh, a Supreme Court judge to office. But the word appoint here doesn't necessarily mean that. We see this happening in Acts chapter 6 when the first deacons are appointed. Luke writes, as the apostle spoke to the early church, brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom whom we can appoint to this duty. And so this word appoint here almost carries the idea of installation or appointment or, or even ordination, though I don't think that's a very helpful word, though it's a word we're familiar with. But Titus is to appoint or ordain them to the office of elder as the congregation speaks into the decision about who should serve in these offices. The church is involved in the process, and as we see in Acts 6, the established leadership is involved in the process. Which, by the way, as we move towards selecting our first elders of the congregation, that's why we're seeking recommendations from you all regarding who qualifies to serve in this office. Just as the apostles sought from the early congregation in Jerusalem, select from among you seven men of good reputation. But then we are also going to nominate these men to you because as the apostles appointed these men to duty, they are involved in the process of vetting and making sure that the men who are appointed to office meet the qualifications that God has laid out in his word. So it's based on Titus 1.5 and Acts 6 and other places while we're going through the process that we are going through. So as we consider the office of elder, we must embrace God's design for his church. It is very possible for a church to survive for years, decades, even centuries without plural elder leadership. We've seen this happen throughout church history. However, if we desire to be a church that thrives, a church that adorns the gospel of Jesus Christ to the best of God's gracious given ability, then we must have plural elder leadership shepherding us in how to do that. We don't want to just be a church that survives. We want to be a church that thrives in glorifying God. And so if we were to embrace God's design for his church, then there's a second thing that we need to learn about elder leadership. Elders provide shared leadership in the congregation. But the second thing that we need to see is elders live exemplary lives before the church. Let's go back to verses 6 through 8. Paul writes, An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife, 
with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy, not money, not greedy for money, excuse me, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled. So the logical question that pops up in our minds as we understand and embrace God's design for leadership that we must have a plurality of elders is who qualifies for the office of elder? Who are the men that should be placed into this office? Who should serve as an elder? And this is the place where the tendency toward pragmatism is most strong for a church. Because we look at the world outside of the church and we look at the kind of men who are put in leadership there and and we think of the likes of the President of the United States being referred to as the leader of the free world. We think of a, a military general who might have the wisdom and knowledge to win a war but not the character to lead God's church. We think of a coach or a team captain on a sports team and think, wow, he's able to motivate and he's able to encourage and he's able to get a team to win the victory for him. Surely he might qualify for leadership. We think of a CEO of a business who is able to make the hard decisions and and lead the the, the business toward fiscal responsibility. Surely he would be able to lead God's church. I doubt any of us, when we think of who qualifies to lead or, or even for leadership in general, do we think of a shepherd? But it is in the New Testament that Jesus describes those who lead his church as shepherds, pastors, their elders who oversee the work of the ministry because they lead under the one true shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. Even less than we think of shepherds as leaders, I think we think of the character of the man who is involved in leadership. Again, our minds immediately go to his ability to motivate and to direct and to to make decisions that will be best for the church. But God looks on the heart. God looks on the character of the man who is being chosen. What matters more than what he knows or even his ability to do certain things, it matters what sort of man he is. And Paul lays out these character qualifications for the office of elder. And before we walk through those, and we're going to have to walk through those briefly, but before we walk through those, I want us to notice and highlight some of the things that aren't in this list of qualifications for elder. The first thing that I would have us notice is that an elder is not a woman. An elder is not a woman. It's very clear that the office belongs to men as God has ordained in his word. The office is reserved for men after the order of creation instituted by God in the beginning. 1 Timothy 2, 12-13 says, I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. This is not a matter of superiority of men or inferiority of women. This is about God's design for his church. Leadership in the church is given to men just as leadership was given to men in God's original design in the garden. Because what happens in the fall, by the way, is God's created order of man being created first and then woman after is actually turned upside down in which women are leading men. This leads to the fall. And so for a church to be countercultural, to be against the world around us, to be pursuing God's original design in the garden, men serve as elders in the church. But an elder is not simply an older man either. 
I think we think elder means older. A man doesn't necessarily have to be older in that sense. Age is not on the list. And just because he is older doesn't mean that he should be an elder. An elder is not simply a successful person or a strong leader. Whether this is in business, personal finance, or other areas of life, success or leadership ability does not necessarily qualify a person to be an elder. An elder is not simply an educated person. Seminary training does not qualify a man to be an elder. Even going to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary does not qualify a man to be an elder. Just ask Dudley. (laughs) Education does not qualify a man to, to be an elder. It matters what he knows. But God's word is very clear. It matters less what he knows and more what sort of man he is, the character of his life. And finally, an elder is not simply an involved member of the church. Serving in the Christian community and serving in the church does not automatically qualify a man to be an elder. None of these things qualify an elder, a person to be an elder. Character qualifies a man to be an elder. And so that's why Paul gives the list that he gives. And the word that summarizes all of these qualifications that we're about to look at is the word blameless. He must be blameless. This phrase shows up twice in these verses. Once in verse 6, where he says an elder must be blameless. And then again in verse 7, as an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless. Blameless is the summarizing term over all of the other qualifications. Those are specific examples in which a man demonstrates that he does live a life that is in fact blameless. Verse 6 speaks of his family life and his home life. He must be blameless in that area of his life. Verse 7 speaks of his conduct in the home and outside the home, but before the covenant community, he must be blameless. This essentially means that he has an untarnished reputation. He has a track record of faithfulness in these areas, and there are no major sinful defects in his life. This doesn't mean that he will be perfect by any means, but that he has a strong reputation for being above reproach, that he lives a life that it would be very difficult to accuse him in any of these ways. In that way, he's blameless. Particularly in the context of Titus, blameless means that he cannot be accused of living inconsistently with the gospel that he says that he believes. Again, if that's Paul's goal for the whole letter of Titus is to send Titus back to establish churches that then raise up Christians who live lives worthy of the gospel and commensurate with the gospel they say that they believe, then that must begin with the leadership of the church. Because if the leadership is not doing that and pursuing holiness and God gospel adorning lives in that way, then they're going to lead the rest of the church away from adorning the gospel of Jesus Christ. He must be blameless. He represents Christ, his redeemer, and the chief shepherd which he serves under. He represents the church before the world watching him, but he also uh, must be an example to the church because his life serves as an example to others. And an elder must seek to live so as to avoid others' concerns that he is guilty of biblical offense or neglect. Before we go into the specifics of these qualifications, the last thing that I would have you notice is that this is primarily about external observation. 
It is important for a man to observe himself, and 1 Timothy 3 certainly speaks about a man aspiring to the office of elder and, and ensuring that he himself in his own heart is certain of his qualifications regarding what Paul writes. But here, in the context of Titus, these are primarily external characteristics in which the church, looking on his life, should be able to affirm these things with a clear conscience. It's about external observation, not internal examination. And so Paul says that he must be blameless in his family life. An elder, verse 6, must be blameless, the husband of one wife, with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. And so here he's speaking of his role as a husband and as a father in his family life. He is to be blameless. He first says that he must be a husband of one wife. And there, there's a lot of debate about what that phrase means from being a husband of one wife to being a one-woman man. But I believe here that the Apostle Paul's primary communication is that in order to be an elder, a man must be singularly devoted to his wife. His primary concern is that he is faithful in his marriage. Now that means that there are certainly some implications of that truth regarding adultery, polygamy, lust, divorce and remarriage, and other issues concerning the institution of marriage. But particularly regarding the issue of divorce and remarriage, I don't feel that I have the liberty to stand before you today and make a definitive position for our church. And so my encouragement to the congregation is this. It is important that those who would qualify to serve as elders in all of these ways would serve our church by recommending a formal position for our church through much reading and prayer later on. So I believe that I understand these scriptures in a certain way, but I think it would be wrong of me to unilaterally impose my view of these verses on you as a congregation without elder leadership for the congregation in that. And so this is a question that we will revisit again as a congregation later on. But Paul's main focus is the man's faithfulness to his wife. He must be devoted to her in every way. He must love and care for her. He must be an Ephesians 5 kind of man who loves his wife as Christ loves the church, willing to even lay down his own life for her, serving her and caring for her, looking after her needs before his own needs. He has a heart, he has, an eye, he has eyes, and he cares for his wife alone. But Paul is also concerned with his reputation as a father. And he gives three things about these, the children of a man who is an elder. He says that they will be faithful children. I don't interpret that to mean believing children, but faithful or trustworthy. And the reason that I, that I interpret it that way is because the same thing is said of the faithful message in verse 9 of these same verses. Paul says that the elders must hold fast to the faithful messages taught or the, the trustworthy messages taught. It doesn't, in, in, it doesn't necessarily require us to interpret that word as believing children because it's actually in contrast to them not being accused of wildness or rebellion. They can't be children who are uh, accused of debauchery or wild disobedience, reckless living in that sense, or rebellion against authority. They're, instead, their children and elders' children must be submissive to authority and to the authority structures that are ordained by God. Ultimately, the qualifications regarding a man's family are less about the other members of his family and more about the man who is being considered for the office of elder. It's less about the children and the wife and more about how the man raised his children and cares for his wife. The result of his faithfulness 
will ordinarily be seen in the lives of his wife and children. For that reason, I don't necessarily believe that this even requires a man to have a wife or children or to have believing children. The point is that an elder must be a model husband and father. He must model faithfulness and Christ-likeness in the relationships that God has placed him within. He's addressing the norm in church leadership, and the norm is that leaders will be married. If a man is married with children, he must be blameless and exemplary in his home life. These standards apply to those who are married and have children, but it does not necessitate being married or having children. He must be blameless in his family life. But he must also, verse 7 and 8 tells us, must be blameless in his conduct. It says in verse 7, As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless. You see, he's an overseer, a guardian. The word, I think, could even be translated as a steward of God's household. The elder recognizes that this household of faith does not belong to me, but belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm stewarding it on his behalf and leading it in ways that will be appropriate to glorifying his name. And because he does that, the Apostle Paul gives qualifications of character and conduct that would lend itself to to living a life commensurate with the gospel that he believes. So he must not be arrogant or stubborn, self-willed. He must not be self-serving. This word should call to mind Philippians 2 verse 4 where Paul challenges the church to look after others' interests and not the interests of one's own. The arrogant man looks after his own interests, his own concerns, rather than the interests of the church. He must not be hot-tempered or short-fused or easily provoked. This refers to having an inclination towards anger. He must not have a propensity towards anger. He's not an excessive drinker, meaning that he's not addicted to wine, or, or really it could be translated someone who is continually alongside wine. And this and really the next two qualifications go together to show us that an elder must be in control of himself and in control of his mind at all times. He must be sober-minded in that way. He cannot be an excessive drinker. He must not be a bully. Referring to someone who is quarrelsome, whether physically or verbally, an elder must be in control of his emotions, his words, his body, and, his, uh, and, and everything about him in every way. He must not be greedy for money, meaning that he seeks financial gain at all costs. He must not be known for taking advantage of people or their situations for the sake of money. An elder, I think what this is communicating to us, must have his desires for the things of the world under control. To be greedy for money means that he desires the things of the world instead of the things of God, that his focus and his mindset is not toward the things of God, but the things of the earth. So in all of these qualifications, Paul is saying what an elder must not be. And essentially, he must be the opposite. An elder must never be out of control with his temper, his wine, his words, his hands, or his money. Then the Apostle Paul turns to the positive characteristics of being blameless. He must be hospitable. This word literally means affectionate towards strangers. This doesn't necessarily refer to just hosting someone in his home, but he freely offers his time and resources to help others. This is the opposite of the arrogance that we saw in verse 6. He's not self-willed, but he's other-focused. He's set his heart and his mind on helping those, even if others, if he doesn't know them. He's hospitable. He loves 
what is good. He loves what is commendable and virtuous. Those things appeal to him over that which is evil. He must love what God loves and hate what God hates. He loves what is good. He is sensible, sober-minded, has his mind under control. This is almost synonymous with self-control that we'll see here in a minute, but it's focused mainly on his mind. An elder has command of his mind. He is in control of what he thinks and does. He is not reactive. He is sensible and clear-thinking. Then the Apostle Paul says that he's righteous and holy. He lives under God's law and he lives a life that is devoted to uh, the things of God in the big things and in the small things. His purpose and direction are defined by obedience to God. He's devout and pious and godly. He models what we saw last week in Titus 1.1. He is a servant of God and a a messenger of Christ Jesus for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of truth that leads to godliness. The elder models for the congregation the fact that knowledge of God ultimately and inevitably leads to godliness, and he models that godliness for the congregation. And finally, Paul says that he's self-controlled. He's disciplined, especially when it comes to spiritual things. He must be disciplined in every area of life, meaning he has control over himself. He has complete control over his passions and impulses, bringing his will under the control of God. In all of these ways, the elder must be blameless. This does not mean that an elder will be perfect in any of these categories. That's why elders need Jesus just like the rest of the congregation. An elder has to seek forgiveness. An elder has to repent of his sins. An elder has to turn to faith in Christ and repent just as every single Christian has to. But he models that for the rest of the congregation. And he demonstrates what it means to follow Jesus in that way and to pursue Christ's likeness relentlessly. An elder models that in blamelessness for the congregation. In his life and in his conduct, he lives an exemplary life. That's why the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, verse 7, Remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you as you carefully observe the outcome of their lives. Imitate their faith. As you observe the outcome of their lives, imitate their faith. That is the sort of men who are qualified to serve in the office of elder. And so as we become a church, pray that your elders would model this kind of Christ-likeness before you. Pray that they would lead lives that are blameless and Christ-like. And there's no way that anyone can be this sort of leader, elder in the church, apart from God's grace. It's not about being better than everyone else and more capable of doing these things. Being an elder means that you are infinitely more dependent on God's grace than the rest of the congregation because your life is under a microscope. Pray that elders will lead lives commensurate with the gospel that they say that they believe. Pray that your elders will lead lives that as you observe the outcome of them, you're able to imitate their faith. But I would also challenge you to look for men who meet these qualifications. Watch how the men in the church live and carry themselves. And if you see these qualifications in other men, Pray that God would make their qualifications clear to us as a congregation and, and, and to existing leadership. And, but I would challenge the entire congregation 
the, the thing about all of these qualifications that we've talked about so far, we haven't gotten to verse 9 yet, but the thing about verses 6 through 8 particularly is that every one of these qualifications at some point in the New Testament is enjoined of all Christians. And so each and every one of us should be striving to live lives commensurate with the gospel that we say that we believe. If we have been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, if we have been changed from the creatures that we once were and made a new creation in Christ Jesus, then the things that we've just read in verses 6 through 8 that must be true of elders ought to be true of every one of us. We must be pursuing lives that are blameless before one another and before the rest of the world around us. And I would challenge you men in particular that as your wives and your children look to you about how to follow Jesus, you must be particularly intentional in pursuing blamelessness in this way. Your family needs a husband completely devoted to his wife, loving and caring for her as Christ loves the church. Your family needs a father who raises his children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and teaches them to love what is good and to hate what is evil. Your family doesn't need a man who is greedy for money, but rather who has his affections set on the things above, not on the things of the earth. Your family needs a man who is blameless, who models discipline, self-control, and holiness for his family, modeling Christ's likeness so that they aren't confused about what it means to follow Jesus. Men, pursue blamelessness for the sake of your family and their souls. But I would challenge you, the only way to be this kind of man is in and through Christ Jesus. You're not going to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You're not going to all of a sudden flip a switch and become this kind of man. No, it's only through personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And perhaps you're finding yourself here this morning realizing not only are you not blameless, but you've been pursuing blamelessness or not for your own, own goals, your own motives, your own reasons for your own lives. And you've got your mind set on the things of this world if you would be blameless, if you were convicted by your sin, if you were confronted by the fact that you have transgressed to the law of God and you are far from blameless, the only way to ever be this sort of man is by the grace of God. The only way to be this sort of woman or child is by the grace of God. If you would put your faith in Him, if you would look to Jesus Christ for your righteousness alone, if you would repent of your sins, turning away from the life that you once pursued with all of your heart and mind, and now pursue a life of holiness and righteousness, if you will turn in faith looking unto Jesus, you will be saved from your sin, and you will be given and granted the grace of God and the Holy Spirit of God to then begin the work of sanctification in you so that by God's grace, you can become blameless unto His glory. But I would also challenge any men who aspire to the office of elder almost in the same way. Being blameless is not for you. And it's not about you. And it's not about glorifying your own name. No, living a blameless life, particularly in the context of Titus, is about showing that truth leads to godliness. Your job as an elder is not to live a life of holiness in order to create the facade that you have somehow reached an unobtainable standard that most Christians will never reach. If you are, are aspiring for the office of elder... Your job, rather, is to show people who are burdened down with sin and guilt, who feel they may never have victory over sin that so easily besets them, that God's grace is sufficient for them. 
because it has proven sufficient in your life. It's not to say that I'm better than you or higher than you because I've now reached the standard of holiness. No, no, no. You are showing them that God's grace has raised you up to a place where you can live a life blameless before them. Your job is not to set an impossible standard, but to prove by God's grace freedom from the slavery of sin is possible. I read in a commentary this week, one man said, the elders' lives are incarnational lifelines of the gospel to those drowning in sinful despair. By our godliness, we demonstrate that the gospel has real power and we provide hope that change is possible. Men, if you aspire to the office of elder, it's not to show your greatness, but to show the greatness of the grace of God in your life, that he has worked powerfully and mightily bringing you into submission and conformity to the image of his son. It's to show the excellency of Jesus in your life, that save for the grace of God, you would be far worse than the life you are living right now. It's about exalting Jesus and the work that he has accomplished in you. Elders live exemplary lives before the congregation. But there's one final thing that if we are to embrace God's design for leadership in his church, we need to learn about the office of elder. Elders embrace sound doctrine for the sake of the church. Elders embrace sound doctrine for the sake of the church. Look at verse 9. It says, Holding to the faithful message as taught, so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. Now, this is certainly, I think, a matter of character. Believing right doctrine is a matter of character. The only reason that I'm really separating out is for homiletical reasons to show that we as a confessional church highlight and accentuate the, the need for sound doctrine in the minds and hearts of those who would have leadership over us. The NASB translates this verse this way. Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with, with the teaching. So what is the faithful word? What is the faithful message in accordance with sound teaching? Well, it begins fundamentally with the gospel of God's grace. It is Titus 1 verse 4 where he speaks to Titus, his true son in the common faith, and says, grace and peace to you. That is, in essence, a greeting which summarized the gospel to us that we have peace with God through the grace that we have received through the Lord Jesus Christ. The message, the faithful word, is fundamentally the gospel of Jesus Christ. As it says in Titus 3, that it is justification by grace through the washing of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. But it is, while it is not less than the gospel, I believe that it is more than the gospel. And what I mean by that is he says that it is holding fast to the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. Paul is using this in a way to articulate the teaching which Christ taught his apostles and his apostles now teach to the early church that we have written down before us in his word. And we summarize, if you've been through the membership class, by the way, you know that we summarize the teaching, the faithful message as taught, the, the, the faith once for all handed down to the saints, in our confession of faith, the Baptist Confession of 1689. But what you ought to know, what you must know about that document is that it is not the gospel, then the confession of faith. 
Every chapter of the confession, every paragraph within every chapter of the confession points us to the redemptive plan of God in the salvation of sinners through his son, Jesus Christ. From chapter 1 to chapter 32, all of it is pointing us to the gospel of his dear son, that he redeems us through Jesus Christ. And so if elders are to hold to the faithful message as taught, then they must be full subscribers to our confession. They must embrace the totality of that because every single word of that document points us to the gospel of Jesus Christ and supports the gospel of Jesus Christ. In holding to the faithful messages taught, he must have a reputation as a teacher of God's word. Not only must he believe right doctrine, but he must be able to use sound doctrine. As Paul writes to Timothy, he must be able to teach. Here, Paul writes to Titus and says that he must hold to the faithful messages taught, so that he may encourage with sound teaching and refute those who are contradicted. But either way, what Paul is saying is he must be able to teach God's word, encouraging on one hand, refuting false teaching on the other. This doesn't necessarily mean that he's able to stand on Sunday morning and offer a 50-minute diatribe. I think that's how long we're probably going to go at this point. Um, but he's not, he's, it doesn't mean that he's able to offer a diatribe on Sunday morning from the pulpit, but rather that he can adequately handle God's word and apply it through encouragement to the saints and refutation of those who would contradict the sound teaching. He must know sound teaching and the gospel which accords with sound teaching. He must be able to explain the source of sound teaching. He must be able to take the word of God and apply it to the hearts and minds of those who are struggling. He must be able to encourage with sound teaching. For a saint struggling against remaining corruption in their flesh or being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine or wrestling with the assurance of their salvation or suffering from the effects of a sin-fallen world, an elder must be able to take that brother or sister aside and encourage them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he also must be able to refute those who would contradict that message. And we're not going to spend a lot of time here because next week we're, going to, we're really going to camp out on what it means to refute those who contradicted in verses 10 through 16. But suffice it to say now that an elder must understand that there is real danger in false teaching. It leads astray and it condemns to hell. And elders protect the congregation by refuting error. So congregation, over the next several weeks, as we look for men and examine their lives, we see whether or not they are blameless and living exemplary lives. Another thing that we must look for is knowledge of the word of God and their ability to communicate it to brothers and sisters who are hurting and struggling. They must be able to encourage with sound teaching and refute those who contradict it. And by the way, I would have a note here that an elder's qualification for leadership is not fundamentally built on his natural abilities, his education, his human wisdom, or his unique giftedness. It is built upon his knowledge of the Word of God. He must know sound teaching and be able to encourage and refute those who contradict it. So as we close this morning, I've been a member of many churches in my life so far. Some had a plurality of elders and some have not. And by way of personal experience, the churches who are thriving are those who have embraced God's design for leadership. The churches who are just surviving, barely making it, are those um, who are directionless, missionless, beginning to fracture because they've yet to embrace God's design for leadership or they have somewhere along the way lost it. And so my personal experience doesn't really matter, but I wanted to share that with you. 
But more important than my personal experience is that if we desire to be a church that glorifies God, then we must embrace his design for leadership. We must raise up and see leading us elders who provide shared leadership to the congregation. We must have elders who live exemplary lives before the congregation. And we must have elders who are embracing sound doctrine for the sake of the congregation. And so while we're all excited and giddy about the coming weeks and that we're going to covenant together as a church and we can finally move on from all of this that we've been doing for the past few months, we're going to have elders and then we can just rock and roll as a church. It is going to be tempting for us, whether it be years from now, decades from now, or centuries from now, to forsake God's design for leadership, to embrace pragmatism, to embrace what we think is human wisdom, and whether it's indifference or ignorance or pragmatism, the temptation will always be there to forsake God's design and to embrace some sort of human wisdom regarding church leadership. Let us continue to embrace God's design. Let us not forget what God's design for leadership is. And for generations on beyond, beyond us, let us maintain a commitment within ourselves to perpetuate God's design for leadership in his church so that future generations may be blessed and live lives commensurate with the gospel that they say that they believe. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we bow humbly before you, thanking you for your word, understanding that the verses that we have looked at are difficult in many ways this morning easy to understand, but difficult to live. And so, Father, I pray that we as a church would look for men to serve us who live and qualify in this way. We pray, O oh God, that you would uh, protect the men who are elected as elders, protect their lives, guard them, their hearts and their minds and their lives from sin and temptation that would disqualify them from the office of elder and lead unsuspecting sheep astray. Father, I pray for the one who is striving for blamelessness or some sort of perfection or to please you in their own rights this morning. I pray for that one that you would convict them of their sin and show them their need of Christ Jesus, that true blamelessness can only come by his grace. And it is in his holy name that we pray. Amen.